Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this complexity edition, Stuart Kaufman returns to read us a story about evolution and complexity. But first up is the news. Flash your brain. MIT researchers have used flashing LEDs to treat Alzheimer's disease in mice. Previous studies suggested that people with Alzheimer's disease had impaired synchronization of gamma brainwaves. Gamma brainwaves oscillate from 2 to 80 hertz. These brainwaves have been associated with memory, attention and perception. Mice engineered to have Alzheimer's disease without plaque accumulation or behavioural changes showed impaired synchronisation of gamma brainwaves when running a maze that required their attention and memory. The mice were also genetically engineered to have brain cells sensitive to light, optogenetics. The researchers stimulated interneuron brain cells in the hippocampus memory management centre of the mouse's brains with light flashing at 40 hertz. These cells stimulated excitatory brain cells to synchronise their gamma brainwaves, a process of entrainment. After an hour of flashing light at 40 Hz into fibre optic fibres surgically implanted into the mouse's brains, the researchers saw a 40-50% to 50% reduction in beta amyloid proteins in the hippocampus. Flashing light at other frequencies didn't have this effect. The researchers next tried flashing the light into the eyes of mice instead of using surgically implanted fibre optic cables. The beta amyloid proteins in their visual cortex were reduced by 50% in an hour. But after 24 hours, they came back to the original levels. Next, they gave mice with beta amyloid plaques from the Alzheimer's disease analogue an hour of 40 Hz flashing lights per day, for seven days, and all of the beta amyloid proteins and plaques in their brains went away. They're yet to find out how long it will take for these beta amyloid proteins and plaques to come back. The researchers also found the flashing light therapy caused a reduction in the tau protein that becomes abnormal in Alzheimer's disease. They plan to investigate if showing the flashing lights to the mice can affect areas of the brain other than the visual cortex, whether it helps mice engineered to have behavioural Alzheimer's symptoms, and whether this technique could help other neurological illnesses that involve damaged gamma wave generation. The team sequenced the RNA from the mouse's brains and found many genes with increased or decreased activity caused by the 40 Hz flashing light therapy. They're now examining how the expression of those genes is connected with Alzheimer's disease progression. So stimulating gamma brainwaves in mice with a variation of Alzheimer's disease caused a reduction of beta amyloid protein production from neurons and enhanced the clearance of amyloid plaques by the brain's microglia cells. Hopefully, it will do the same in humans who suffer the illness. The paper was published in the journal Nature and was titled Gamma Frequency Entrainment Attenuates Amyloid Load and Modifies Microglia. A tip of my hat to listener and friend Squiggle for pointing me to this story. 
You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Stuart Kaufman is back. He's a medical doctor, philosopher, theoretical biologist who does experiments, physicist, and expert in the mathematics of complex systems with a focus on the origin of life. Now get comfortable and listen carefully, children, while Stuart reads you a story from the history of life about evolution and complexity. Hi, I'm Stuart Kaufman, and I'm going to tell you a story. Here's the story. It's a surprising true story of Patrick S. I, Rupert R., Sly S., and Gus G. protocells in their very early years. Once upon a time, very, very, very long ago, almost nearly four billion years ago, off the west coast of Gowandaland, life as protocells had recently, well, begun. It was all under a turbid sun on a scorched earth in a shallow lagoon, Days and nights came and went, even before Patrick, Rupert, Sly, and Gus really became Patrick, Rupert, Sly, and Gus, but were merely normal protocells amid their ex-gen cousins all over the place. Dry and wet and wet and dry, and all the Gen Xers sort of ate the stuff slowly and softly flowing in the lagoon. And they multiplied, making so many Gen Xers that Almost four billion years later, their grand, 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 you know, would be all over the blue dot planet. But nobody got much stuff, because all the even tinier floating stuff floated at the very same speed as the Gen Xers. But that was okay, because it was true for all of them, and nobody got really mad. But one day, Patrick Protocell felt a bump, jump, hurt inside of himself. What's that, he thought a bit fearfully. Oh, it's my what-do-you-call-it sticking out of my side. Ouch! Patrick felt the pinch and even was pierced. A little molecule, peptide made of 13 amino acids, had stuck out of his side. Then do you know what happened? The little peptide bumped into a huge rock, very much bigger than Patrick, but much smaller than even a thimble. And the peptide stuck to the big rock. Patrick was stuck. He could not float about and laugh in the lagoon, hoping for stuff. I've got to get unstuck, thought Patrick with alarm. He yanked his tummy and his bottom up, but stayed stuck. The more he tugged, the more stuck he seemed to be. Oh, no, thought Patrick. All is lost. If only I had a mother, I could call her, he winced. Oh, well, maybe I'll get unstuck. And when it gets wet and dry a few times, I will, he hoped, rather like a latter-day sailboat hung up on a rock at low tide. I'll have to make the best of it till then. Maybe I'll bump into some stuff, he wondered. But how I'm stuck to this old rock? Patrick, without too much hope, a bit desperate at his woeful situation, looked up. And guess what? Well, you'll never guess what happened to Patrick. In a trice, Patrick saw, just flooding at him, lots of stuff, exactly where he was stuck, here, there, everywhere, floating so fast towards him that he feared he could never, ever gobble up any of the fast-streaming stuff. So bucked up by the very possibility of stuff, Patrick gobbled as fast as he could. He ate lots of stuff. Very full, a very short time later, much shorter than normal, Patrick divided into two Patricks. We're stuck, they both cried, and indeed they were both stuck to the very same big, huge rock. 
Patrick and Patrick's were dividing so fast, much faster now that they had so much stuff floating at them, that soon there were lots of Patrick's. Well, in about seven, there was a large Patrick patch, many grandchildren of Patrick who had become what? Patrick had become, on getting stuck to the huge rock, the very first sessile filter feeder on the early planet Earth. Think of that, the very first one. And that's how Patrick became Patrick the first. Before Patrick got stuck, he was a typical sophomoric Gen Xer protocell. Now he was special. He could stay stuck to the rock sessile filter feeding all wet and dry long. Where did Patrick come from? Well, sort of from nowhere. Patrick the first just emerged out of pretty much nowhere. First, there were just Gen Xers, Patrick among them, all slowly dividing while eating stuff. But Patrick had had a special opportunity. He had, accidentally, of course, seized that very opportunity. His opportunity was that the nutrients were flowing slowly and there were rocks, including the rock he got stuck to. So if he did get stuck, he'd get more nutrients per unit time than other protocells, so divide faster. That was Patrick's opportunity, but what does it take for the becoming of the, in the becoming of the universe for a context to be an opportunity, like the rock and the slowly flowing nutrient stream was to Patrick? Not everything or process is an opportunity. A tiny rock by itself is not an opportunity, nor is a rock and a slowly flowing nutrient stream of stuff. There is no opportunity without something that can seize the opportunity and take advantage of it. And Patrick is just such a something. Patrick, in fact, had seized his opportunity. For me, thought Patrick, glad that he was one for whom an opportunity of a life could be seized. Patrick had become a for whom. What does it take for something in the universe to seize an opportunity? What does it take for something to become or be an opportunity that can be seized and something to be able to seize it? The surprising crux of it is, you cannot have an opportunity without something, a for whom, for whom the context is an opportunity, and you cannot have an opportunity without a for whom that context is an opportunity that can now be seized. What counts as an opportunity? It makes no sense without something that can seize the opportunity. But this is not imaginary and not just words. Patrick really came to exist in the early biosphere as a first sessile filter feeder. Hence, he came to exist in the non-ergodic universe above the level of atoms. By seizing his opportunity, he became Patrick the first sessile filter feeder. So what counts as having an opportunity? For Patrick and the biosphere, the success was very real. Many Catricks forming the Patrick patch did in fact outgrow the Gen Xers per square meter and in fact did get to exist in the non-ergodic universe above the level of atoms for some time. Patrick and his offspring could do so because they were autopoetic. That is, they were self-reproducing systems able to self-sustain and reproduce themselves and be selected. He and his offsprings were what are called Kantian wholes, where the whole exists for and by means of the parts. In particular, Patrick was a collectively autocatalytic set of little proteins called peptides in a liposome, which is a hollow lipid vesicle that buds and is also able to make the lipids that form the liposome. Patrick was an early form of life, able to evolve by natural selection and heritable variation. That is why Patrick constituted a for whom, a context here, the slowly flowing nutrient stream and the tiny rocks, constituted for Patrick an opportunity to be seized. 
Patrick came to exist in the non-ergodic, non-repeating universe above the level of atoms, where most conflicts will never exist. Patrick actually changed the unfolding history of the whole universe. No mean feat when all he had to hold on to was a tiny rock not as big as a thimble. I'm so glad, thought Patrick the first. I'll just hang in here and love it and divide when I feel like it. So Patrick the first divided and made lots of Patricks two by two until the Patrick patch was spread all over a big part of the lagoon. That is the first part of Patrick's story, how the first sessile filter feeder came to exist out of pretty much nothing. And you see, the story is all you really need to know. That's really what happened. Isn't that just amazing? First no Patricks, then Patrick the first, the sessile filter feeder out of nowhere, just because his peptide happened to stick to the rock. Later, Charles Darwin would call this sticking to a rock a pre-adaptation in Patrick. Now we turn to Rupert's story. How Patrick, now that he exists, provides an opportunity for Rupert to emerge and exist. Rupert was pretty much your ordinary protocell, a bit laconic. He couldn't swim, but he could wiggle a bit as he came near stuff. Maybe he was excited, so he wiggled. But beyond wiggling, Rupert was already a bit special. He could eat stuff, but he could also already stick to other gen actors and make a hole in them and suck out their inside stuff. Rupert thought this was very good, for every now and then he bumped into another gen Xer and he got a special dinner from it. But bumping into other gen Xers did not happen very often, as they were all floating in the same slowly moving stream of stuff. Rupert, like most of the others, mostly ate plain old stuff. One day, do you know what happened? Rupert floated into the Patrick patch far away from most of the gloom. Oh, no, thought Rupert. This place is full of, well, I don't know. How do I get back to the clear lagoon? He tried wiggling, but got nowhere. He, he, he was the best he could do. Rupert was as woeful as Patrick had been, maybe more. He was far from the clear lagoon. Well, guess what happened to Rupert? He bumped into Patrick the 4,794th. Rupert poked a hole into the sad Patrick and ate him up. Thought Patrick the 4,784th. Cool, thought Rupert. So Rupert became famous in the lagoon as Rupert Raptor Protocell. Raptor Protocell. He was the very first predator in the lagoon and the whole earth and the universe. Rupert changed the history of the whole universe. Soon there were lots of Ruperts bobbling in the Patrick patch, which itself was growing in number of Patrick's faster than Rupert's could manage to eat them all. This was the very first food chain in the biosphere. Out of nothing did it come. The first food chain changed the history of the universe. So did the rest of the food chains that followed. Patrick, like Rupert, was a for whom there could be an opportunity. The startling thing about Rupert, however, is that Rupert's opportunity included not only the lagoon with nutrients, but now included Patrick's. For by being sessile filter feeders, Rupert's bumped into Patrick's in his skin faster than into Gen Xers, floating in the nutrient stream into which Patrick and his skin also floated. Patrick was part of the whole context that was Rupert's opportunity. Rupert seized his opportunity. Patrick, by existing and creating a Patrick patch, afforded an opportunity to Rupert, given that Rupert protocell could not swim and was in a slowly flowing nutrient stream where he could only eat stuff and very, very rarely bump into other Gen Xers. So Rupert's opportunity was Patrick the First and Kin, the sessile filter feeders, in the Patrick patch, 
where Rupert could bump into many of the Patrick's kind compared to just eating the occasional rare treat of Gen Xers. Rupert now divided rapidly, and soon there were lots of Ruperts growing in the Patrick patch, or by now several Patrick patches in the lagoon. There was no one else alive in Patrick's opportunity context. His opportunity was only the slowly flowing stuff and the tiny rock he sort of grabbed onto. But by coming into existence, Patrick and his own kin in the Patrick patch now came to constitute the context, the very opportunity for Rupert to come to exist. No Patricks, no Ruperts, who soon quite forgot about eating the hard-to-bump-into-gen-exers and now depended entirely on eating Patricks to survive. The ecosystem had become Gen-exers, floating stuff, Patricks, Patrick patches, and Ruperts grazing on Patricks. It's a little bit like billions of years later, grass and rabbits. Could you write an equation for this? How would you know what to write? This story is pretty much you need to know. What would mathematics do here at all? Nothing much about the becoming of Patrick and Rupert. In fact, mathematics would tell us nothing about this becoming. But Pythagoras taught us that all was number. Is it? Where's the number here? We looking and do not need number, and Patrick and Rupert never heard of Pythagoras, who grazed in the Agora long thereafter. Well, children, I, I, I can't tell you the whole story, because you see Gus comes into existence, but Gus doesn't come into existence until Sly does. Sly, Sly is an ordinary protocell, but that he doesn't know that his name is somewhat pejorative. And it turns out that Sly uh, can stick to, to Rupert, and when Rupert pokes a hole in Patrick and eats Patrick's stuff coming out, some of it leaks out around Rupert and is on Rupert's skin, and Sly sort of slurps it up. Uh, he's sort of like a, a, a small fish inside of a shark cleaning the shark's teeth. Um, so, you see, Sly comes into existence and only can come into existence because Rupert's already there. No Rupert's, no Sly's. Uh, then Gus comes along, and Gus so wishes that he could hang onto a rock and become a sessile filter feeder, but he, 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 he keeps missing. But he can attach to Patrick, and he becomes a sort of second-rank filter feeder. And so... Gus comes into existence, and I don't quite have time to tell you all of that in the story of Gus and the story of Sly, but I want to try to get to, to what this is about and what this tells us. It tells us something that we don't know how to talk about, you see. Darwin somewhere wrote an image of species driving a wedge in the crowded floor of the competitive nature to create a space to live in. But that's not the story of Patrick, Rupert, and Sly and Gus. Patrick, in seizing his opportunity in becoming Patrick the First and forming the Patrick Patch, thereby creates and affords a new niche for Rupert. Patrick is the niche and opportunity for Rupert. Rupert is the niche for Sly, and Sly becomes, by his glue part, which I haven't told you about, part of the niche for Patrick. And Patrick is the niche for Gus. There's no wedge driven into the crowded floor of nature. The floor itself is expanding, creating new niches by creating Patrick, Rupert, Sly, and Gus, who create niches for one another. The same is largely true of the biosphere in general and the global economy, both of which have exploded in diversity, just as Patrick gave rise to Rupert, who gave rise to Sly, who stabilized the species ecosystem, and Gus came along to hang off Patrick. We seem to make our worlds and thereby make rooms for one another, each for whom makes even more opportunities for other in its adjacent possible. 
the adjacent possible rooms explode faster than the occupants who, by existing, create the very adjacent possible rooms. In much the same way, both the biosphere and global economy explode in diversity on average. Each species affords one or more adjacent possible yet new niches for yet new species, so expands what now becomes possible. Spanish moth moss hangs off of laboring trees. New goods and services and production capacities expand what further new goods and services can now make a living. Personal computers made work processing possible, which made file sharing possible, which made the World Wide Web possible, which affords a place to sell on the web, which has made content on the web, and that soon enabled browsers like Google. It's not only that the floor of nature is crowded by competition, as Darwin thought, but rather that each species also affords adjacent possible new niches, new wide cracks in the floor of nature that invite the next new species into those wide cracks that constitute new niches. The possible new spaces uh, niches expand faster than the species that create them. Patrick created two niches, one for Rupert and one for Gus. The web created new niches and enabled both eBay and Amazon. This is an unprestatable becoming of for whom's that can seize their specific opportunities in adjacent possible niches that we in turn each create for one another. The floor of nature expands, housing ever more room after room that we jointly co-create faster than we all came into existence. That's how complexity emerges. That was Stuart Kaufman, Professor of Biochemistry at the University of Pennsylvania, University of Calgary, the Santa Fe Institute, the Institute for Systems Biology, and the Lifeboat Foundation, reading from his story about the evolution of protocells, Patrick, Rupert, Sly, and Gus. You can watch the video of Stuart reading the story on the Diffusion YouTube channel. And now a new segment on Diffusion. Here's why. I hear what you're saying, and I follow your arguments, but you're wrong. Here's why by Ian Wolfe. Quantum computers are important because they are not merely very fast or extremely fast. They are ludicrously fast, exponentially faster than current computers. This means that where a current computer may work at 10 billion instructions per second, a quantum computer would work at a speed of 1 with 10 billion zeros instructions per second. That is, 10 to the power of 10 billion instructions per second, ludicrous speed. If you appreciate Google's use of machine learning on big data to let computers understand any human speech instead of just being trained on one person's voice, can you imagine what happens when a machine that can learn from millions of examples is able to do so 10 to the power of 10 billion times faster? A fact to consider is the first application ever written was to break the public key prime number encryption that the internet uses for security and that the second algorithm was searching. Artificial intelligence, virtual reality, big data, everything ludicrously faster is a revolutionary new world we can only start to imagine. The University of New South Wales Centre for Quantum Computing leads the world in being the first group to develop silicon-based quantum computing that can be scaled up using traditional manufacturing techniques. It took them 18 years to make silicon quantum bits, now they need to scale them up into CPUs and rule the world. How do quantum computers work? Well, classical computer bits can be zero or one. 
quantum computer bits, qubits, can be one, zero or a superposition of the one and zero at the same time. This means that when a quantum computer is solving a problem, its qubits can represent every possible solution to the problem at the same time, representing them as quantum waves. The clever part is that the quantum computer is designed so that when you run the program, the quantum waves representing all of the solutions cancel out except for the right answer, which is left to display in traditional ones and zeros for us to read. So you search through all of the possible answers at once and at ludicrous speed get the right answer. That is what quantum computers are and why they will change the world. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your own voice on radio? Go to the website and click the tab on the right to send a voicemail to be played on air. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Support the show on patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambaka Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.